Broadcasting live from a waterbed, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I'm your other host, Garrett Strother. This week, in a follow-up from our last week's episode where we covered The Conjuring 1 and 2, we're tackling the brand new The Conjuring The Devil Made Me Do It, which just came out uh, this morning as of the date of recording. Yeah, uh, on HBO Max and in theaters, and disappointingly it came out at 2 a.m. here in Central Time, so I couldn't stay up at night to watch it. I checked at midnight to see if it had had come through, but I, like you said, a little disappointing. I'm excited to talk about it with you, but first up we've got some news to cover. Up top for news, Taylor Swift is joining the new David O. Russell film, and she's being added to a cast that is just already very stacked, so this is this is interesting news. David O. Russell films, I feel like of late, have been definitely Oscar vehicles, and he tends to work with a lot of the same people, namely Christian Bale is a big collaborator with him, and I think like Timothy Oliphant's also in this movie, which is, you know, always a treat, but... David O. Russell is a pretty bad dude, and I don't know why in the era of accountability that we're currently living in, in holding people to standards in Hollywood, why he hasn't kind of been, for lack of a better term, canceled. I know, uh, like, all of his movies that have been coming out the last, like, decade, but I really, I don't know enough about this controversy about him, I guess. The thing that I've always gone back to that I heard about a long time ago was George Clooney was in one of O. Russell's earlier films, Three Kings, and said it was the worst experience he'd ever had in his entire life making a movie, and that David O. Russell would yell at every single person on the crew and, like, physically assaulted George Clooney once when he tried to stick up for the crew. Oh, what the hell? That is terrible. I, I did a little bit more research on it before before going into this episode because I knew we'd be talking about him, and I guess has a pretty standard track record like it wasn't just some young director not knowing how to direct and yelling at people but that's still how he behaves on set to the point that when they were making American Hustle he made Amy Adams cry on set literally every single day and at one point Christian Bale had to tell him to like leave because he was getting too intense oh my god that is horrible Taylor just got done with like terrible people and the entertainment industry, and she's just kind of joining another notorious D-bag, huh? Like you said, in this era of accountability that his last, like, three or four movies have been Oscar contenders in their own various ways, and I would like to not have this man be so prolific in the film industry, if I'm being honest. I uh, Maybe a little more exposure of his bad behavior will help out, but... Apparently, there has been plenty of exposure, so I don't know. But yeah, Taylor Swift's back acting, I guess. Cats and cats and this. Oh yeah, I was about to say, wasn't she in something recently? But I, I have not run the gamut of watching the new Cats, so that's a blacked out part of my film release memory. Next up, we've got more casting news, which is Donnie Yen, famed Chinese action star, has joined the cast of John Wick Chapter 4, a movie I didn't know was in production. I think I heard that John Wick 4 was going forward, but I mean, you know, I haven't been, I loved John Wick, didn't see the sequels, even though I heard they were very fun. I think Donnie Yen is absolutely golden on screen. I think like any movie that I've seen him in, you know, the Ip Man franchise, his 
spot in Rogue One, especially when he's going to be matching his like absolutely fierce handwork with Keanu Reeves like absolutely crisp gun work in the John Wick movies. I think regardless of if he's going to be maybe on his t- team or if he's going to maybe be the bad guy, which might be fun, I think it's going to be it's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah, I think he's a perfect fit tonally for this series and also there's so much tactical precision mm. that's a part of the John Wick action that Donnie Yen seems like a no-brainer to bring into that universe. The man doesn't skip a beat in terms of like his physicality. I actually don't know how old he is, but I know he's he's getting up there in age, but he is still like sharp as ever, so it's going to be very cool. Absolutely. And our last bit of casting news is that Issa Rae has joined Into the Spider-Verse 2 as Spider-Woman. I've been itching for more Spider-Verse since the first one came out, and I think the implications of Spider-Woman versus, like, Spider-Gwen, I guess, is a very interesting thing to think about. How they're just gonna absolutely blow up and expand the possibilities of what a Spider-Verse could be. I I think that's gonna be very cool. Is a raise a good fit, especially in that that first movie... Even the more serious roles are mostly comedians, like Catherine Hahn as Doc Ock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think this is really good casting, and I'm excited to hear more Spider-Verse casting hopefully coming up soon. Yeah, I have a feeling that we're going to be going to the old podcasting call soon for this one. I think with the success of that first Spider-Verse, they're going to triple down on everything they're bringing to this next one, including how they're going to expand out that cast. And next up in news, Mission Impossible 7 has shut down production because of a positive COVID test. I'm hoping that it is Tom Cruise because that would be the funniest. I mean, that's obviously horrible and I don't want that to happen. But after his big blow up, I think that the absolute irony of it would be delicious. I obviously don't think it actually is him because he is, as we've talked about before, an absolute robot man and... He's been, I'm sure, isolating himself so successfully because of him trying to avoid this exact situation. But I don't know. I guess it kind of seemed inevitable. You know, we'll see how long this lasts. I'm hoping that, you know, maybe it was more of an isolated thing and it didn't spread too much and they can resume again soon. I'm so excited for it, Seamus. Honestly, I am too. From the small stuff that I've seen, like you said, him on a train, like, I'm in for it. It's just fun action, so... For our last bit of news, we have the new Billie Eilish single, Lost Cause, and its music video, which dropped earlier this week. Which is uh, an official bop, I think. It's a good song. It's it's very... It's really good. It's a good song. And the video like made me smile just because it seems like they were just having so much actual fun like shooting that video together. Yeah, I I think, honestly, I've got more to say about the video than I do about the song, because the song is just a very good breakup song. Yeah. A lot of the tone of, like, No Time to Die with more Billie Eilish in it than No Time to Die has. Sure, yeah, I know what you mean. What are your thoughts on the video, man? I want to know. So, Seamus, I know we've talked about a couple of Billie Eilish music videos on the show before, but I don't know how many you've seen. Uh, I've seen that last one we discussed where she's on a mountain with a snake. Uh, I've seen this one, which I enjoyed a lot. I saw the spider one, which was lovely, and I had to really look pretty closely to figure out 
the legitimacy of the spiders. <laughs> I'm trying to think that is there one where she's just got like black slime coming out of her mouth and yep. or face. I've definitely yes. I've seen that one she too. That's pretty it. wicked. What I'm getting at with that is this is unlike any other Billie Eilish music video in terms of its tone and the fact that there's no like crazy surrealist imagery. Yeah. It's borrowing a lot of its visual language, honestly, from rap videos, because you have a lot of wide-angle lenses getting really close up in the camera's face, scantily-clad women running around a big Beverly Hills mansion. Yeah, you're definitely not wrong, but then it's, like, undercut by, like, like slumber party imagery, and it turns it into, like, a way more wholesome idea of that kind of video shoot along with the lyrics and theming of like like you said kind of just being a very good breakup song and then pairing that with the imagery of being with your actual friends and like feeling good and like moving away from it instead of wallowing in it it's it's interesting but just like everything else that's kind of been coming out with this happier than ever all the singles and the and the vogue photo shoot and all that stuff it feels like simultaneously you know, Billie Eilish's spin on whatever, but also a inherent commentary on male gaze, which I know we talked about at length the last time we discussed Billie Eilish. Yes, yes. Some of the shots are a little more risque in this video than, like like you said, kind of like ever before. She's been more focused on those surrealist images, but I mean, it seems like she's kind of emerging from that a little bit you know, ditching the more baggy clothes I know was like her whole image for the longest time. And also Annie wanted me to mention when we were talking about this earlier that the boy that the album's about that she broke up with that was like not good to her was a rapper. So using that rap imagery also I think has a little bit more to it than just like rap is usually the music video genre where you see the most male gazy imagery Mm -hmm. already. You mentioned Slumber Party being wholesome, but I think there's also definitely the idea of, like, the cliche of the high school movie where all the girls are having, like, a sexy slumber party with pillow fights and all that. And this music video leaning into that idea of, like, the girls are twerking and, and wearing revealing clothes. Yeah, very true. But then, you know, it's also, like, all kind of beige clothing and eating potato chips and playing xbox and like kind of cooling out too it's an interesting dichotomy truly this is one that we're definitely going to be watching closely as she releases new singles and as that album gets closer to release i'm really looking forward to it when it when it finally fully drops like we've been saying these singles these videos are like very pointed in what they're trying to say and i i think it's just really good But with that, Seamus, should we move on to The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It? I am hyped, Gary. Let's do it. This week for our main segment, as we've been building up for the last couple weeks, we're doing The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. It's the third in a trilogy of main Conjuring films. You can see this one on HBO Max, and I'm ready to kind of jump into it, Gary. What were your thoughts on this new one? First off, I, we mentioned this earlier, I was kind of impressed with how much of the stuff that we were hoping to see from our conversation last week ended up being true for this film. Yeah, we definitely we definitely sniped a couple of those details. However, I do think that you can definitely tell that this movie is not directed by James Wan and not written by 
the I, I believe it's the Hayes brothers that wrote on the first two films. One of the writers from Conjuring 2 did come back, but largely this is from a creative team standpoint a new set of folks working on it and i know james wan was technically a like he had a story by credit or whatever Mm -hmm. i genuinely do think that this film it just feels inconsistent and less scary and tonally just kind of odd i was gonna say like could you really tell the directorial and writer changes because of the lack of scariness in this third one, because I definitely felt that shift away from the the horror that is so effective in those first two movies. And I don't necessarily mind the fact that it's not as scary, but it just felt weird and disconnected to me. Yeah, I, I think I definitely agree on that. That being said, I genuinely liked it. I don't think it was a bad film. I'd probably watch it again. I think maybe I'd watch the other two before I'd see this third one again. But like you said, the kind of shift from not being as scary or horror forward as the other two still doesn't hinder it too much as like a crime mystery that we were teeing up with our guesses. I'm thrilled about that. Like, that is a direction that I'm super glad they went in because it made me feel a little bit more invested in how and Lorraine were going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. However, I felt like in this film, I was less invested in the characters that were being affected at the same time. Because this is something we'll talk about more in spoilers, but I just feel like giving so much more time to and Lorraine, which is great because that's a trend that they've been doing throughout the three movies they had to cut a lot of the time you would normally have been spent with the characters being affected by the haunting. Yeah, this one, it starts off really compelling, and we'll we'll get into it more in spoilers, like you said before. Like, I thought the dynamic of the family in the case for this one was very interesting, especially with the action that it starts off with. I thought it was kind of just going to escalate a lot from there, but more than any of the other ones, this is the uh, Warren's movie for sure. I would say that it has horror sections, like almost like a Spielberg movie where Spielberg will pepper in, oh, here's going to be a scary part of my movie. Yeah, I think so. I thought this was going to feel more like a finale, but they left it about as eligible for more movies as any of the other ones, so this might not even be the last of the the old Conjurings, I think. I would love to see more of these, and again, we'll talk in spoilers about, I mean, we talked at length about it last week, too, about the way that the Warrens are portrayed in these movies, and how you have to suspend your relationship with like the based on the true story elements a little bit for these of course yeah definitely there's and i think this is the biggest one of those because <laughs> yeah obviously they changed the way you know the cases allegedly went in the in the first two movies and abbreviated time and stuff like that but in this movie i would say 50% of the actual ghost stuff at least is just straight up like completely made up has no basis in what actually happened Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, that's like you said, this one out of out of any of them, you really just kind of have to go into it with no like don't even read the based on a true story in the freeze frame opening of this movie. Just just brush past it. I think we have to kind of wrap up and go into spoilers now if we want to if we want to talk anymore, to be honest. Yeah, I 
like we said, this is very much a mystery. So like we, we can't reveal too much without going in. So why why don't we cross the the threshold of spoilers and really get into it? You just mentioned the conjuring freeze frame opening, the staple where the yellow 70s text comes up over the whatever character. Usually it happens on a note of Discord. Usually it happens when something really scary has just happened and it makes it really clear how much Ed and Lorraine are needed there. But in this one, it subverts that by freeze-framing after one problem has been resolved, but giving you the inkling of what the next problem will be. Yeah, it's kind of a it's a it's a really clean way to tee up the exact setting that you need to 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 swiftly go into the story they're actually trying to tell. Especially, but are with they the... trying to tell it though, Seamus? That's the question that I've got that... for this movie. <laughs> that is the question, isn't it? They really grabbed me with the visceral crunching boneitis that that little boy has in the beginning. Exorcism. It and... is the dweeby one from Wandavision, right? Okay, is that why I remembered his teeth? Is that <laughs> is that who that is? I think it's I think it's one of the twins from from Wandavision. Not, yeah, not the Quicksilver twin. It's the other one. The other one, the magic one. Pretty great. That was like the classic, just like twisting body exorcism that I I always I always get all shivery with when I see that on screen, and I I, I like that a lot. The little actor did a great job. They had some really on the nose visual homages to The Exorcist. <laughs> yeah, I laughed out loud when I saw the the old priest friend coming through with that like. He kind of like shakes off his jitters as he walks up. Is that like not exactly what happens in The Exorcist? It's literally exactly The Exorcist shot. I think it's cute, but I do think it, for the fact that that sequence already wasn't really scaring me that much, it's definitely <laughs> like, oh yeah, okay, we're in cute pastiche land, not I'm horrified by the clapping in the basement conjuring Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I thought once the curse was passed on to the older brother and there's that scene of him when he actually commits the murder on their landlord, I thought that was incredibly well done. Just the way that they were kind of ramping up his uncomfortable feelings and just like turning up the orange haze filter ever so slightly as he was getting more and more freaked out. And I thought that was an incredibly effective way to like actually get to where we kind of both knew it was going with that d-bag of a of a landlord yeah with the landlord it was really weird to me because i think this is the time to talk about the fact that this is the one where it's the weirdest for it to be a true story because it's a true story of an actual guy that actually murdered somebody it's not just like a haunted house movie it's like no a guy died the fact that this is so rooted in reality makes the fact that they make the landlord such a scumbag really rub me the wrong way i didn't even really think about that that guy probably wasn't as much of a bastard as he was portrayed as in real life i mean i guess i didn't look too far into this specific one of their cases after this but like you said it seems like kind of in poor taste that they didn't give that character based on a real person as much of a chance to be empathetic i did some research and Apparently, the actual murder is pretty close to what was depicted, that they'd both been drinking, and that the landlord grabbed the girlfriend and, like, wouldn't let go. Oh. Now, I couldn't find out if that was, like, as in, like, a funny way or, like, whatever. Like, maybe it could have been them just dancing and screwing around, or it could have been more malicious or something. Yeah, and then Arnie 
Johnson stabbed the guy. He stabbed his landlord. Was it actually 22 times? That's pretty brutal. I couldn't I couldn't find it. It didn't sound like it, though. It sounds oh. like that was exaggerated. It sounds like it was, like, a few times. Because that was kind of an important part when they were, like, trying to connect it to the other murder that they investigate briefly with Which, the girls. and from what I can tell, is completely fabricated. Oh. As well as everything to do with the witch and her father and, like, the disgraced priest and all that. Yeah, we didn't even talk about how it's just a witch's curse again. They're going really back to the roots of this franchise. This is, let's talk about the fact that they largely abandoned the haunted house formula from the first two films. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a welcome thing for me. I was hoping it was going to be more of a mystery, and that's the way to do it. And you still do get a little bit of the pleasures of that haunted house film when they have the flashback to the boy and the waterbed. Yeah, definitely. Which, that and the exorcism scene at the beginning, I would say, are the two scariest sequences in this film. Yeah, that waterbed one really did get me. I like. I knew it was coming, but it was. it's still incredibly effective with the eeriness of, like, him mirroring the boy's hand as he's, like, waving it across. I thought that was that was wonderful. Uh-huh. And the idea of, like, there could be something in a waterbed, you know? It, yeah, you don't know, the murky sea waterbed or something. Can't look too far into it. Bodies hiding in there. But most of the film is not spent on the actual murder that this film, in its title, purports to be about. Like, they changed the naming convention to more closely associate it with that famous devil made me do it trial yeah and then they show only in the last three or four minutes the actual trial and barely focus on the actual murder at all there's the exorcism at the beginning they investigate that for a little bit but then mostly they go off and they explore all this fake stuff and i could almost say that it would be worth it if maybe that excommunicated priest was like more involved and that it was like a bigger twist when they wanted us to feel that twist at the reveal of like who he is to the witch but they don't focus on him enough and then they don't focus on the legal aspect of it enough and like you said they kind of just go run off have Lorraine do another vision sequence where she like can't control herself and even that cop guy could have been like a way to make the legal aspect of it be more legitimate if he like joined them more but nah they they, like go half measures on a lot of the stuff that would have made it really really good there's two different movies in here that it can't decide what it wants to be so it's just neither of them and it feels like its attention is diverted and diluted and that's a shame because i really like the performance of that creepy old ex-priest guy whose name i can't remember but He's in stuff, right? He is super familiar looking. Yeah, I know his name, and uh, it's John Noble. He is in things, right? What is he in? He's Lord of the Rings. Oh, that's definitely probably where I know him from. Yeah, and he's also, I think, Scarecrow in the Arkham games. Oh, that's cool. Right on. Yeah, he, he was fantastic in this movie. He was just like the perfect amount of creepy and like a little endearing when you hear his story about like, you know, raising this witch girl. And I wish he got a shot off with that gun. He got sliced pretty swiftly. It just doesn't have the emotional resonance that that scene is clearly supposed to have. I was like, yeah. God, don't let me fail now and let me redeem myself and all this stuff. And he just dies. It doesn't even feel tragic. It just feels like, oh, there's that character that was in two scenes. He's dead now. Yeah, there could have been a little bit of a emotional showdown with his evil daughter. Even the surprise of getting 
hit from the back with that, you know, blade across the throat would have been a lot more impactful if there was a bit of dialogue between them to build up that it's like maybe her in front of him actually instead of the immediate fake out to death, you know? Yes. That's the thing that I keep coming back to with this film is that obviously so much of it is fabricated because they were trying to walk a line where obviously there are higher stakes with a real life murder investigation and a real life murder Mm -hmm. trial that they were trying probably to avoid, I'm guessing. Probably something there about keeping it not as true as it could be. Especially considering the fact that these movies have already been sued multiple times i think by people that were affected by the cases in the first two movies so yeah they were probably just trying to skirt that all together but then why not just tell a different story that's the other thing is that part of the reason this movie's not very scary is because it feels so over the top and so heightened compared to the other two that i know it's fake that so many people are dying that the fact that he dies and the witch dies and they go all jack torrance with ed at the end Which, I even thought that was a fun idea, if they played maybe with that a little more, a little differently, but again, seems like an idea that gets thrown on screen pretty swiftly and then dropped just as swiftly, you know? There are a lot of good ideas in this film that didn't all connect in the way that they clearly wanted them to. I would say it's definitely the weakest entry in the Conjuring franchise, but at the same time, I'm I'm glad it tried something new, I'm, I'm glad it leaned into the mystery element because that's something that I wanted it to do. I just wish it were scarier. Yeah, me too. I wish it was scarier and like we've been saying, a little more cohesion between these like genuinely good ideas for a horror movie. Oh, and the dead body thing. The whole scene in the morgue. Oh, yeah. Granted, that big dead body zombie puppet guy was pretty freaky when he started charging at him like i'll give him that but that sequence is actually pretty tense but it just again it feels so over the top that that the witch is literally reanimating this dead body that it just doesn't feel it loses me it feels like ghostbusters or something at that point i was like oh they're gonna do a thing where they're gonna catch the warrens who have like seemingly broken and entered into this well, I guess that's what they actually do. Oh, they, they literally break and enter it, into yeah. the morgue. But like, they're gonna do a thing where they're gonna throw out a bunch of evidence because of whatever how it was gathered, and it's gonna make it a lot harder for the Warrens to help this boy who's on trial. But they just kind of use it as a way to bring back that dead body later to to again charge. Oh, I guess they use that in the Jack Torrance sequence too. But oh, which yeah, also in real life they did not plead demonic possession in front of the jury oh what i thought that was like gonna be the whole thing no they threw it out like the judge threw it out before the actual jury heard it and that the lawyer's primary defense was self-defense so that's part of the reason they didn't show so much of the court case is because there wasn't actually that much demonic stuff in the actual court case but once again tell a different story the warrens have so many cases like allegedly something like 10,000 cases they worked on over their, like, 60-year career. And, like, with those numbers, they could base a movie off any of them and just write a good movie with an idea for a case. They could have done that with this movie, just made it about a demonic court case that didn't have to be tied up in as much of the true-to-life stuff as they got tangled in. That kind of made it feel a little disjointed. But then the parts of this movie that they do make up don't feel like a Conjuring movie. They just feel like a generic horror movie. So nobody like if, wins. <laughs> no, but truly nobody wins. If, if they were going to go in the direction of like, we're going to tweak these details to make it 
more exciting. They could have just rolled with that, but they tweaked it enough to make us want the exciting stuff and never quite achieve it. I still like this movie. I really do. I know it sounds like we're kind of dunking on it, but it's yeah. just not as good as the other two is really the secret here. That's pretty much it. It's like, I liked this movie. I think it was effective in a lot of what it did. And I think we're kind of pulling it apart so much because there's so there's all this potential that we see in what we got and how if they are going to continue to make sequels how they could expand and kind of perfect what they've got going on or a lot of how this movie could have been handled just a bit differently like you said overall like genuinely enjoyable i liked the detective work that was in on all this i love that our boy drew makes a comeback for the third straight movie and he's like he's got a lot more to do every time he's in another movie and he's really like a part of the squad this time and i hope that if they make a fourth one i hope he's like a full-fledged uh part of the warren team that is like a little more active in the stuff it's rick moranis putting on that ghostbuster jumpsuit he's ready to fly Yes, they get they get Drew to perform one of the exorcisms or something. Let's let's get crazy with it. Dad, I wonder if Drew's a real person. I'd love to know. Well, that's my next Google search after we're out of here. Oh, they had a nice callback to the parents from the first movie. I liked that. They sent them flowers after Ed's heart attack. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ed's heart attack is another thing, though, where I feel like if they had tried to do a smaller stakes film a film that was more in line with the realistic tone the first two movies had that i would have felt a lot more tension for him but in this movie with how over the top all of the third act was it just felt like a gimmick did ed warren die of like heart complications inevitably like i feel like they were trying to tease out like hey the real couple that we base this on actually are dead currently what if we're gonna be dramatizing their death and i thought that was gonna be a really kind of messed up way to go about it because they were really teasing those pills you know i have no idea what edward actually died of but i do like the idea that they do try to make them older in this film because at this point we're 10 years after the first conjuring movie starts i think i think that movie's in 1971 and this 70... is 1981 yeah you're right yeah so i but like yeah. that they aged them up it's hilarious that their daughter is just like forever a teenager yeah it's a little strange i think they implied that she was at college in this movie though so you bet your ass I was scanning the background for Valak style Easter eggs and didn't find a one, weirdly enough. Uh, I think the motel that the Warrens are staying at is the first name of the guy who got murdered. It's the blank hotel or the blank oh, motel. Interesting. Which like that never really bared any significance later. I was like, oh, interesting. They're kind of bringing back the guy again. But, you know, that never really did anything. And they hid a little nun figurine in the bedroom of the young couple towards the beginning that I was like, oh, hey, hey, there's a, there's a visual reference. That's fun. Then we also, of course, have the nun painting at the end in their room of goodies. Which, really surprised because of how they like really made a meal out of the shot in the second movie about putting the crooked man box next to the music box. And I was like, oh, they're going to... They're going to do another flash of that or like the Annabelle case, but they don't even put the Annabelle case in focus in this movie. They mention Annabelle by name when they're scaring that lawyer into helping them. And then that's all we get. They really weren't trying to use those other movies as a crutch. No, 
which I do admire that about these movies is that they're kind of little Indiana Jonesy one-off adventures, but yeah, each movie you learn more about and Lorraine. That being said, I did feel like the stories they told each in The Conjuring 2 about their like life together and everything was way more impactful than the like flashback sequence they had in this movie. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought they were going to do more with that, kind of like how they did it with the talks in the second movie, kind of like making that a little more integrated into the actual situation at hand, but that really only comes back at the very end when he builds her a replica of the gazebo. That's adorable. Like, I love that. Again, this movie ending in, like, a happy marital bliss moment between the Warrens, which is, is nice and not expected for a movie like this. Oh, they've got that Elvis joke. Which I like. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She says she met him once after he died, too, which I'm assuming means, like, she's referring to his Elvis impression in Conjuring 2. That's what I was thinking, but also maybe she's just being cheeky. Maybe we gotta look up if the, the Warrens ever contacted Elvis in real life. The Conjuring 4, Elvis made me do it? Hmm. Hey. I, don't know if that would, I don't know if that would hold water in theaters. Does your house smell like peanut butter and banana sandwiches? <laughs> Can you hear a uh, uh in the night <laughs> that you can't explain? I think we're officially out of stuff to talk about, other than the fact that when the kid's in prison, they do a couple of sequences that aren't very scary. Yeah. Or at more, least super more predictable. Yeah, definitely. There, there's more bone-cracking bonitis when he's in the bed and he, like, degloves his hand to get out of the cuffs, which is gross honestly not even that worth talking about this weird suicide curse that this guy's going through because it's kind of not that interesting that's a bad priest who gave him glass on suicide watch i, mean, I that's do just dumb. love the bad priest though i love that he's a bad <laughs> priest because he's a like it's yeah. gotta be intentional that he's a bad priest yeah he's just like a bumbling priest he can't handle this like ed warren can pulling out an exorcism out of nowhere ed warren didn't fix anything in this movie which is lame Oh, yeah, I guess he didn't. He used a sledgehammer to slam down on an altar. But honestly, yeah, that witch was kind of whack. It was weird to have a corporeal villain. That also took away a lot from me. But, you know, her demise was an interesting bonitis moment that I enjoyed as well. What are they going to say to the police? The police aren't going to accept, oh, yeah, <laughs> the demon came and snapped all our bones. That, again, like, lead them to the Satanist dungeon, and you're like, do you see all, you see all this? Like, we didn't put this here. This is an old witch tunnel. I'm just saying, it's not a good look to be the only two people living at a multiple murder crime scene. Yeah, very true, very true. See so yeah, this movie, I hope it does well enough for a fourth one, I guess is my only real thought. Yeah, I'm in on that with you too. I think that we can have plenty more fun with the, the Warren angle. If you like the first two, just see this for fun. I mean, it's not like a must-see or anything in general, but it's it's a it's a decent continuation. Alright, let's let's move on to our pop culture reference, shall we, Seamus? Let's do it. For this week's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about the real-life Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were paranormal investigators and world-famous demonologists. They're featured as the main characters in the Conjuring films, and obviously we're talking about them today because we talked about the third and newest installment of the Conjuring franchise. Though Ed wasn't actually part of the church, he was incredibly knowledgeable about biblical theories and the inner workings of the church, 
but Lorraine was actually self-described as a clairvoyant and a medium that could speak to spirits and see the past and future. They were both active as demonologists in the second half of the 20th century, and they actually founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952. They were most famous for creating a lot of the attention and draw to the Amityville hauntings in New York, which inspired dozens of books and films, including the intro of the second Conjuring film. Yeah, and they have a lot of really other famous cases too, a lot of which have been fictionalized since then. You've got the Annabelle doll which is in real life a Raggedy Ann doll, but is a creepy like porcelain doll in the movies. She has her own trilogy of films spun off from the Conjuring universe. You've got the Enfield Haunting, which is like one of the most famous hauntings ever. That was the subject of the second Conjuring movie. The Snedeker House Haunting, which was the inspiration for the movie The Haunting in Connecticut. And of course, the Arnie Cheyenne Johnson Devil Made Me Do It court case which is what the third movie that we talked about today was trying to portray. They kept all of the artifacts from their cases, just like in the Conjuring films, at the Warren Occult Museum in their house, which has been closed since Lorraine Warren died in 2019. Now, you can see this in all three of the Conjuring films, actually, but in real life, they never charged for their services. But... Many people, including a lot of the families who they worked with, accused the Warrens of exploiting them, the mentally ill, and manipulating scared and confused families for media attention. They were also accused of outright fabricating entire narratives for their books, but many skeptics admit that the Warrens were likely entirely genuine in their beliefs, and that predetermined conclusions based on their Catholic faith influenced their investigations. Actually, I was doing some research on the movie today, Seamus. And apparently there was a older brother of the possessed kid at the beginning that isn't portrayed in the movie because he hated the Warrens and accused them of encouraging their family not to take their son to go to see like medical professionals, mental health professionals, which is what they would have had to do to get a, a church sanctioned exorcism which they didn't actually have in real life. And he suspects they did that to avoid them diagnosing what he suspected was his younger brother's schizophrenia. God, that is dark. It's a very interesting thing about how, yeah, they weren't necessarily charging these people and exploiting money from them, but they were also exploiting potentially, you know, conventionally solved medical problems and kind of spinning them to source books and media attention, and that's exactly what the older brother, not depicted in this film, asserts that they were doing. So that I think that's just fascinating. The Warrens are really more famous than ever right now because of this huge blockbuster conjuring cinematic universe that has, what, like eight or nine films now almost, I think? Yeah, between all the spinoffs, it's, it's like eight or nine. Yeah, it's a lot. Because you've got the three conjuring films, the three Annabelle films... The Nun, The Curse of La Llorona, which was also directed by Michael Chavez, who directed the movie today. Oh, right on. Very nice. Keeping it keeping it in universe. That is eight, right? Yeah. I think eight. so, yeah. And then they've obviously got more on the way. I think there's a sequel to The Nun coming out. I think there's a Crooked Man movie coming out, maybe. Oh, yeah. I think we heard rumors about that recently. So we're going to be seeing more Warrens, definitely. And just in general, they're worth knowing about because they had a huge influence on the way media and pop culture kind of have a perception of the real life hauntings around the world 
in the last 70 years. Like, they've been working since the 50s. Yeah, that influence is undeniable. Like, going back to the popularization of, like, the Amityville hauntings, that was, like, a massive explosion for, like, what we now know is modern horror storytelling on screen and through those novels that the family and them wrote. It's a long and complicated history with the Warrens, especially when you try to compare it with the legacy that is being built around the fictionalization of these real people. So what does this influence you to think about these movies? Or does it influence you at all? Are you kind of keeping it a little more separated? Let us know down below in the comments if you're on something with that. Or tweet us. You know, let us know what you guys think about the relationship between the real-life Warrens and these Conjuring movies. Is it all in good fun? With that, what do you say we kick it on over to the rec center? Let's do it, Seamus. Now it's time to save the rec center, where we give you our weekly recommendations. Seamus, you got one up top? In my most current MCU rewatch, I am back with another maybe unpopular opinion about one of the lesser celebrated Marvel films. Everybody should go and rewatch Age of Ultron. And that's that's <laughs> that's my stamp of approval, man. That movie's good. People need to stop being so mean to the Hulk and Age of Ultron. They're good movies. I think with me, Age of Ultron just represents the stuff that I like the least about the MCU at its peak. Self-referential, needlessly world-building, setting up stuff that's taking itself simultaneously super seriously and not seriously enough. There's quips in all the wrong places, and Thor has to go off and have his cave visions that are super self-serious, and the whole Ultron's building a vibranium body that Iron Man has made the the brains for, but then Thor gives it life by striking lightning into it. Just get out of here. It's too much. You're, it's too you're much, describing Seamus. gold right now, Garrett, with a tone of disgust. I don't know. I don't know what your problem is, but the the birth of the vision is awesome man the big the big fight leading up to the uh, the whole building uh, building a vibranium body that is totally that's making sense to me villain wise james spader the absolute king of like weird creepy evil guy voice is just killing it the introduction of wanda and the introduction and exit of quicksilver which definitely is cool later in wandavision just it's Granted, I will agree that it's a lot of stepping stone things that they were like building up for Civil War and, you know, like it's not the top of my list, but I I went into it being like, oh yeah, this one again. And I was just, I was enthralled. I didn't remember much and it was a lot of fun. I feel like it's too long and it feels like a movie where they were trying to set up as much stuff as they could, but didn't really have a plan for where they were going at the same time. Which is kind of, you know, we talked about this during WandaVision. That's always been my whole problem with Wanda, is that she feels like a character that was introduced because she was supposed to feel important, but they didn't have an endgame in mind for her. No pun intended. Granted, I will say, when Hawkeye goes, you're an Avenger now, I was just like, all right, whatever, dude. Like, like whatever. But I actually like that scene. That's one of the only scenes like, that movie that, I really that, care for. That made me roll my eyes just because she was so very easily entered into that. That the, There's a little bit of whiplash with the Maximovs on what they're trying to do. And obviously helping a homicidal robot and then being surprised, that, whatever. But picking up the hammer scene, I always love that. Like that. That's yeah. That's a lot of fun stuff there. 
everything in that movie just feels too spread thin for me and underdeveloped. Like, there's so much stuff in that movie that could have been really cool if you focused more on it. But, I mean, like, I'm not trying to just stomp all over your rec center, Seamus. I I don't mean to... Please, I'm fully aware that this movie has a ton of problems, but in my mind, just rewatching it with those incredibly low expectations, I was so pleasantly surprised that it's got to be my unpopular opinion rec center that I think Diego is just going to add to the list of things to make fun of me for, you know? I think it's... <laughs> it's I just got to be me. I got to fly, Garrett. Maybe I'll, I'll rewatch it sometime. Your opinion will not change, I don't think. Because you're, you're very right in a lot of it. I'm just a sucker for the rise of the machines, and Paul Bettany is absolutely lovely as Vision, so I, I gotta give it to it. Paul Bettany's a wonderful man. Yeah. Eric, what do you got this week? I actually have a on-topic documentary to recommend, Seamus. Oh. I'm coming in hot with the Apple TV original Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry. Oh, I didn't even know there was a Apple TV thing. Explain, Garrett. I don't think it was shot for Apple TV. I think it was just a doc that Apple TV bought the distribution rights to. Okay. But I think it starts when Billie Eilish is like 16, but it's basically tracking her rise through stardom that a documentary crew has been following her for years and I am daunted to think how much footage they had. The movie itself is two and a half hours, so it's... Oh my god. It's, it's a long watch, but it is not your standard, like, concert, film, puff piece, pop documentary. It is a really stark look at being a young person who is famous, and how do you parent a young person that is famous? How do you help them cope with that. Also, it's very clear that Billie Eilish and her brother Phineas had a very unconventional upbringing that both helped prepare them for the fame that they're now experiencing at young ages, but also maybe led to them having some different world outlooks that are detrimental. It's just a really interesting insight to what goes into making this, you know, renowned teen pop sensation and also actually is really relevant to, I think, the messaging that's going to be coming out right now and soon with the new album, because a big piece of that film, which only came out at the end of February, is her relationship with the rapper guy that this new album's about. So I think it's also, like, worth noting that it's kind of on-brand narratively for where Billie Eilish is as an artist, and I don't think that's probably too much of a coincidence. Damn, I'm going to have to check this one out, man. I think... Having that window into the upbringing and kind of the early stages of her teen fame is would be an absolute trip to watch right before, like you said, this album about her kind of burgeoning into a new chapter of her career and her life. I, th- I think that's definitely really interesting. I might, Seamus, I've got an Apple TV login for you. Also, it's only five bucks a month, and they oh. have a lot of really good programming. I actually recommend it quite a bit. Ooh, stay tuned for our annual Battle of the Streaming Services update. All right, I'm going to watch this Eilish documentary and Ted Lasso, and then Apple's going to shoot up to the top spot. <laughs> well, um, I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference, closed out news and the episode with Billie Eilish talk, and I can only imagine we're going to be talking more about her in the next few months. 
Yeah, I can't wait. She She's always doing something very interesting, so no complaints here. If you want to reach the show, you can tweet us at PCR underscore podcast. Find us on Instagram at that same handle. You can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. Please let us know what you think about the Warrens like we were talking about today. Are you excited for more Conjuring films? Do you think that the real-life origin of the subject matter of these films is in poor taste? Or are you able to like turn your brain off enough for it to just be a movie? Let us know what you think. Next week, we're going to be talking about... The Disney Plus original series, Loki, the first episode is going to be dropping, and oh, Seamus, are you excited to be back to our weekly Disney Plus recaps? I am thrilled, Garrett. Do we, oh wait, we do have a name for our new Loki segment. I don't know, we're, we've got that teed up, I'm very excited. I can't wait to talk about it. Owen Wilson, he's going to be there, it's going to be great. Over, under, on number of episodes it takes for him to say Wow. What do you think? I think his character seems to know a lot about stuff. Oh, yeah. Not a lot is going to surprise him. But Maybe they'll save it to the finale? He seems kind of smarmy, though. So maybe when Loki's like, do you know who I am? He's going to be like, oh, wow. You're the god of mischief? Wow. That's great. (laughs) That could be fun. Oh, I'm very much looking forward to it, man. I can't wait. Join us next week, folks. Until then, we're out. Adios, amigos. Adios, amigos.